Testicular cancer is diagnosed in thousands of American men each year. But if detected in the early stages, we have great success in curing testicular cancer. What are our most effective screening measures for testicular cancer, and how can we best instruct our patients to be vigilant with their own self-examination? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Men's Health. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Craig Nichols, Medical Director of Lymphoma and Testicular Cancer Research Program at the Robert W. France Cancer Research Center at Providence Portland Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Nichols is an internationally respected expert on testicular cancer. Welcome, Dr. Nichols. Thanks for having me. We are discussing the history of testicular cancer research and screening modalities for testicular cancer. Dr. Nichols, tell us a bit about the history of testicular cancer research. The history of research really began in the early 1960s when oncologists and hematologists first began to use systemic medications to try to cure disease. And at that time, the only tried and true management of testicular cancer was surgery and oftentimes very aggressive, very disabling surgery. In the mid-60s, several agents came along, which by modern standards are very old, but they had very modest activity, and and early clinical trials showed that combinations of some of these agents did affect growth of systemic disease. Which agents were these, sir? Probably the three agents, one of which we continue to use today, were bleomycin, vinblastine, and actinomycin D. The latter two we don't use much anymore. And what has happened in the past five to 10 years? Well, in the last five or 10 years, we've been able to refine the gains we made through clinical research in the intervening 10 or 15 years in the 80s and early 90s, where we refined the treatments. And over the last five or 10 years, what we've done primarily is to use prognostic factors and better imaging to tailor chemotherapy precisely to risk so we don't over or undertreat patients and still result in the, the best cure rates. Are we using chemotherapy more than we are surgical intervention for testicular cancer? Absolutely. And this is a product of some of the most recent research is that we are progressively replacing what used to be the mainstay surgery, which is retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, with either surveillance or early chemotherapy for patients with early stage disease. So I think our direction is that we are moving very rapidly away from primary retroperitoneal surgery as management of these diseases. Certainly, orchiectomy is a critical part of care, but no longer do we do the radical retroperitoneal lymph node dissections as frequently as we have in the past. Most physicians are familiar with the increased incidence with cryptorchidism or the link to HIV. Are are there any other areas where there's a concrete theory on the cause of testicular cancer? Sure. There are actually, and that's certainly an area of very fertile research, but We know several things. The bulk of the evidence points to the hypothesis and the uh, likely fact is that this is a carcinogenic event that occurs probably in utero, that it, it doesn't seem to be strongly associated with exogenous factors, as we have found with many other diseases such as smoking and its link to lung cancer and dietary issues in in colon cancer, but we really don't have that sort of linkage. And we do have strong 
biological and epidemiologic evidence that this seems to be an effect that happens in fetal development. What about other immunodeficiency disorders? Well, that's a very good question. And the other analogous situation is the post-transplant situation where tumors are very common in people who are intensely immunosuppressed for organ transplantation. And compared to HIV, we don't see testicular cancer as a post-transplant secondary malignancy whereas the evidence is pretty compelling that there is an association with HIV. Any behavior or lifestyle patterns? Not that we have been able to pin down precisely by any means. And there's often been speculation about testicular trauma or certain occupations, such as cycling or or other things. But the epidemiologic evidence doesn't support a traumatic cause or an occupational cause that we've been able to identify. If you have just joined us, you are listening to a special segment, Focus on Men's Health, on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and with me is Dr. Craig Nichols, Medical Director of Lymphoma and Testicular Cancer Research at Providence Portland Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Nichols is an internationally respected expert on testicular cancer. We're discussing the history of testicular cancer research and screening modalities. Dr. Nichols, take us through the primary screening modalities for testicular cancer today. Screening with other malignancies starts with recognizing who's at risk. And I think that's something we've been doing a lot better job of, is identifying people who are at particular risk. And So the first thing is to see if you fall into a a risk group, if you will. What are the risk groups, sir? Probably the strongest risk factor is having a first-degree male relative with testicular cancer, which invokes a four- to ten-fold risk over the general population. Having a twin with testis cancer is a hundred-fold risk. People with atrophic testes have a higher risk. Obviously, people with an undescended testicle or a history of an undescended testicle have a higher risk. And uh, there have been variable linkages to people who have a history of hernias, people with other urogenital abnormalities such as bifid ureters or horseshoe kidneys. So all, all those things put a person at a higher than average risk. If you perform an orchiopexy for cryptorchidism, Does that change the incidence of testicular cancer or just allow you to catch it easier because you can examine the testis? I think it is a little fuzzy in terms of how much that reduces the risk. Certainly, it's clear that people who do not have an orchiopexy and have a retained abdominal testis have a significant and probably higher risk than people who undergo orchiopexy. But the risk is not only confined to the testis that is undescended, and about a quarter of the testis cancer in patients with an undescended testicle occur not on the undescended testicle, but on the normal descended side, suggesting that this is a field defect and similar tissue is at risk. So an orchiopexy is certainly not perfectly preventative, no matter when it's done. What about self-examination? Self-exam, I think, represents the gold standard and, and probably the only reasonable screening technology we have. And so we certainly strongly encourage the brothers and sons of our testis cancer patients to do testicular self-exam. We go to high schools to raise awareness of 
of testicular cancer and demonstrate testicular self-exam to young men. But the disease is rare enough that unless someone is at very high risk, such, a, such as a twin, we don't do screening markers or ultrasounds and, and depend very much on self-exam and self-reporting. Why do you think with the media the way it is and the access to information uh, so exploded with the Internet that if we take breast cancer, most women are, are very much involved with self-examination, but yet, at least in my practice as a general surgeon, most patients will admit that very few of them do self-examination. Do you think this is an aspect of education or just what? It's a good question, and I think it's largely an unanswered question. I think it's probably several fold. Number one, I think it is partly a matter of education, and I'm not sure that we have gotten the message out completely that young men can't get you know testicular cancer and they're at particular risk, and that there's something they can do in terms of early detection by self exam. And I don't think we get that message out enough. Secondly, I think it's a little more sensitive subject being attached to your gonads. And I, I think it's something that men or young men oftentimes don't want to think about or bring up. And third, I think there is some fear, and we see that all the time in people who come to late diagnosis, is that they're afraid that they will lose a testicle or lose both testicles, not knowing what their options are, and come to diagnosis late and, and worried about their sexual function and image and all those things when that shouldn't be a great concern for them. Now, in prostate evaluation, in addition to physical examination, it's not infrequent that we will use screening studies such as a PSA. What about using the marker testing such as beta-HCGs or alpha-fetoprotein just as screening markers? Is this something that should be done? No, it's something that the statistics and epidemiology of the disease makes it impractical and we would have many more false positives than true positives just because of the rarity of the disease. So there's only about 8,000 cases in the United States each year. The vast majority already come to early diagnosis. And if you do any screening test on millions of young men with such a low incidence, you're going to have a high number of false positives that will lead to further unnecessary workup. So there's isn't a recommendation for using markers as a screening tool. They can be helpful in someone with a suspected diagnosis, but not as a screening tool. When someone has a solid testicular mass, why is it mostly uh, approached through the groin and not through the scrotum, and why commonly are biopsies not done and the whole testis is removed? It's a very good question, and I think it's important to remember that the scrotum and the testis have different lymphatic drainage. And in the past, when the urologic and, and general community was less aware of this, we did see people do biopsies or even orchiectomies through the scrotum. And that results in a risk of tumor seeding of the scrotum or the inguinal region, which is something we ordinarily never see. So it's important to do a radical approach bring the testis up through the inguinal incision. The surgeon examines it at that point. And nowadays with our you know, modern ultrasounds and everything, they are usually very highly suspicious even before they do the surgery. And they do the surgery if it 
looks grossly like a malignancy, which their uh, urologists are fairly good at detecting, they ligate all the lymphatics, seminal vesicles, and the blood supply high above the testis itself in order to obtain clean margins. And, and occasionally, even with that procedure, we still find a spermatic cord margin that is positive because the tumor is kind of infiltrated up the cord. So it's important to do a cancer operation to ensure or to diminish or eliminate the risk of local recurrence and that there aren't positive margins remaining, which require special and extra management. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Craig Nichols, and we have been discussing the history of testicular cancer research and screening modalities for testicular cancer. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to a special segment, Focus on Men's Health, on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening. This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.